Hey friends, Wes Huff, Director of Central Canada here at Apologetics Canada. Before we start the podcast, I want to personally invite you to our upcoming Apologetics Canada online launch event taking place on Saturday, October 30th. God is blessing the Ministry of Apologetics Canada with a season of growth, and we want to thank you for your part in making it all happen. This online launch event is about sharing with you all that God has been doing through this ministry and where we are headed in the next year. Meet our growing AC team from across Canada and hear more concerning what they're passionate about and the great work for the kingdom across this country. We hope you will join us virtually Saturday, October 30th, 4 to 6 Pacific Time, 5 to 7 Mountain Time, and 7 to 9 Eastern Time, where together we can look back, give thanks, and look ahead as we celebrate a season of growth at Apologetics Canada. Find more details and register at apologeticscanada.com and click the launch image on the homepage. Even if you can't attend live, sign up and we'd love to send you the video. And now, back to today's podcast. Hey, welcome listeners to this week's edition of AC Podcast. This is Steve. I'm here with the one and only Andy Steiger. Good to be here. We have a very special guest here um, who is not a stranger to us, actually. Uh, we have on the line all the way from California, Dr. Clay Jones. He is visiting professor at Talbot School of Theology, but he's more than uh, just a professor. He's somebody that Andy and I have had the pleasure of actually learning from directly. We've been in his class. Um, he is sometimes known as the evil professor because he teaches the course on theodicy and evil and suffering those kinds of things. He is also the author, on that note, he is the author of Why Does God Allow Evil? And today we're going to be talking about his new book that came out recently called Immortal, How the Fear of Death Drives Us and What We Can Do About It. So welcome here, Clay. It's so great to have you. Pleasure to be with you both, Andy and Stephen, and I thank God for your ministry. Thank you so much. Yeah, we thank you for your ministry. I will... Clay, I got to tell you, I'll never forget. I don't even know if I've told you this story, but when I first went to Biola, I was doing my master's degree there. I you know, drove down from British Columbia in this U-Haul with my family, arrive in Los Angeles in a heat wave. I managed to unpack half my stuff. And I think to myself, hmm, I wonder if classes have started. I could be a little absent-minded. And sure enough, my first class on writing had had started. I showed up late to your class, and uh, that was my introduction to Biola. And I, I immediately fell in love. I never thought that I would enjoy writing so much, but I did. And I think it's interesting here. At that point, you hadn't written any books, but yeah. you'd been teaching a writing class for some time. And now you have two books that are out. Yes, it's kind of interesting, right? You had done blogs and stuff, but was it a big leap, you know, as you jumped into starting to write books? No, not really. I, I, I'd done a number of journal articles and I'd done several encyclopedia entries and things like that. And as you know, when you do a dissertation, I did mine was about 200 pages. What was great, though, is the teaching the writing class for years and reading students papers and going seeing what works and what doesn't did help my own writing a lot. Uh, so I'm very thankful for that opportunity. Yeah, I, I grew in my my writing skills in that class. You, you're right. You know, writing dissertations. And this is one of the challenges, I just think, in apologetics in general. And it's something that you do great in, in this this challenge of writing on these, you know, 
big topics where you've got these terms that people have never heard of and and you're dealing with these you know philosophical theological issues but to do so in a way that people can understand is is a real challenge you know academic writing is much easier than writing in a way that anybody can just kind of pick it up and read it sadly a lot of academics that write are are rather lazy and you may remember a quote that I quote Zinser, who taught writing at Yale for 20 years. And he says, the trouble with academic writers is, is not that they're, you know, they're they're so highfalutin, but but just the the fact that they're too lazy or they don't know how to bring it down to the average person. And I think Zinser is correct, is is because if you can't be understood, what have you got? I mean, so yeah, I have a new appreciation for this. I mean, I know this is a little bit different, but my family just recently started homeschooling. And my goodness, having to explain things in a way that an eight-year-old and a six-year-old can understand, it's been a real challenge. Can I explain what theodicy is without using that word, right? And it's been a really good challenge for me. And I find that sort of accessibility in your writings. And I really appreciated your first book, Why Does God Allow Evil? And with this one, Immortal, you didn't disappoint yet again. And so I'm just wondering, after I read your book, Why Does God Allow Evil? I thought to myself, I wonder if Clay's going to write something else, and I wonder what he's going to write on. And then the book Immortal came out, and as I was reading it, I, I thought to myself, my goodness, he really put his finger on the, the cultural pulse here. So let me just start by asking why this book? What, what prompted you to write in this area? Well, you know, it's as I was finishing up my book on evil, I came across a book by a Paris philosopher named Luke Fetty, and he wrote in called A Brief History of Thought, which is a bestseller. In that book, he says this, the quest for salvation without God is at the heart of every great philosophical system and is its essential and ultimate objective. And he goes on, by the way, and says similar things. He says, that's what it's about. When I read that, I, I, my mind was blown. Now, I don't consider myself a philosopher. I have a BA in philosophy, but that doesn't make you a philosopher. But I thought, I didn't know that that's what philosophy was really about. And so I started reading all the other guys. And Plato said, truly then, those who practice philosophy, are they're training to die easily. Uh, and Plato says similar things, where philosophy is preparing you for death. Of course, Epicurus of Epicureanism it was all about how to face death. So same with the Stoics and the, uh, you know, I mean, same thing, dealing with facing death and even Arthur Schopenhauer, Michel de Mantegna, uh, on and on and on. These, uh, these guys say it's about dealing with death. And so I was off. How do people, how does the non-Christian deal with death? How do you get salvation without God? And that just, you know, I, I was off. So I would start reading so, sociologists, psychologists, anthropologists, philosophers, met, de, reading, getting on my hands on everything that atheists had said or written about death. And uh, the, that's how this book came about. And, and I'm very thankful for it. So I did a book on evil and then I did a book on death and I'm working <laughs> on a book on suffering. So there you go. Devil, evil, <laughs> suffering and death. So there you go. Now, it's interesting. I, I agree with you, by the way, this idea that, and w with what you've quoted here with regards to philosophical systems and people's desire to deal with death. One, in fact, one of the things that I think is interesting is in my own, my own work, uh, I came across some, something in California. It started in California called Death Cafes. I don't know if you've heard of those. I'm familiar with it. 
where people will gather together to talk about death. Now, what's interesting about those, of course, is they will limit the discussion. You can only talk about these things, but you can't bring religion, for example, into the conversation. It is interesting how people will limit their conversation on topics of death. And more than that, some people just spend their entire life trying to avoid the subject altogether. Oh, yeah. Don't you see consumerism just simply being that? Oh, yeah. At 100%. uh, The first strategy in dealing with death is denial. And denial doesn't work without distraction. You know, we're going to just deny the fact that we're going to die. And I'd be walking in, walking into church, let's say, and somebody said, what are you doing? And I said, I'm writing a book on the fear of death. And they look at me regularly. This is the standard response. I don't fear death. And mm-hmm. I'd be like, okay. Uh, but <laughs> I, I decided that they weren't entirely being dishonest because they don't think about their deaths. They don't think about their deaths at all. Not at all. Uh, it's only when they have a chest pain or have a positive come back on a blood test or they find a lump somewhere, then they know how much they fear, fear death. The fear of death stands in front of them and it won't leave the room. Uh, then they know, but the rest of the time they're denying it and then they're distracting themselves. And I think that's what you're bringing up, Andy, is that, um, that's where social media comes in, uh, you know, television, you know, you, you can't just, you know, it used to be when I was a kid, you had the big three, you know, ABC, NBC, and CBS. Now you got to have Netflix and HBO and Showtime and you know, on, the, mm-hmm. on and on and on and on Hulu, uh, but people and people buy them. And, and I know people have every single one of these platforms. Well, here's an interesting quote by Woody Allen. He was he was interviewed at Cannes Film Festival, and, and this is what he said on the subject. He said, no matter how much the philosophers talk to you or the priests or the psychiatrists, the bottom line is, is life has its own agenda and it turns right over you while you're prattling. We're all going to wind up in a very bad position someday, the same position, but a bad one. The function of art, as I see it, is to convince people otherwise. But you can't really do that without conning them, he said, because in the end, it has no meaning. We live in a random universe and you're living a meaningless life and everything you create in your life or do is going to vanish and the earth will vanish and the sun will burn out and the universe will be gone. The only way around that, he concluded, is to turn on a baseball game or watch a Fred Astaire movie or do something that distracts you. That's what I do. I distract myself. Making movies is a wonderful distraction. It works Mm -hmm. for the actors as well. They're worried about their parts, he said. If they weren't doing that, they'd be at home or sitting on a beach, and they'd be thinking, my God, what is life about? I'm going to be alone. I'm going to die. My loved ones are going to die. I'll get Ebola. Now, <laughs> well, I, I wish I'd had that quote when, before I finished my book. I would have put that in because Bertrand Russell says almost exactly the same thing, uh, that the universe is going to burn out and all of the noonday brightness of, our, of the smartest people is going to come to nothing um, We're all because there's only going to be a universe in ruins. And, and so, like I said, it's basically the same exact thing and and because the universe is going to burn out and all of your efforts to save the climate and stuff that's all going it's not going to last it's all going to go to absolute well first we're going to be burned up by the sun then the universe is going to go to absolute zero (laughs) after all the stars burn out and uh i mean wow what a mess See, now he brings up Ebola there because you can obviously tell when this was written, that was the issue of the day. For us, it's not Ebola, it's COVID, COVID COVID-19. I want to just get right at the heart of an issue that I think is is 
probably on many people's minds on the subject of the fear of death. I, I cannot believe with this pandemic that we're that we're in how much it has brought out just how deep and profound people's fear of death is. Oh yes, Clay, would you agree? And and tell me what your thoughts are on that. Oh, I couldn't agree more. In fact, when I came out with Immortal, uh, it came out in like February, uh, which the next month is when when we really started hunkering down over COVID in March. It was really actually selling very well. I wrote it for an audience. The audience before COVID was kind of when they came to death was like, huh, death. No, there's something I don't think about very much. You know, I mean, I could read a book on it and just see see what how do people handle it? I could read a book on that. Uh, as soon as this COVID thing hit in earnest, is my book sales, even though thankfully, if somebody goes on Amazon, you'll see people love the book, I'm thankful to say. But it just did plummeted in sales because one of the things with writing is you're writing for an audience. I did not write it for an audience that was literally scared out of their minds by yeah. death. I didn't write it for that audience. I wrote it for the audience pre-COVID. That's like, oh yeah, death, that's kind of, I'd like to know what's more to say. There is to say about that or to think about it. what do people think? Uh, my wife, by the way, why God allows evil has skyrocketed because that's the question people are asking now. But but yeah, no, it's seriously, people, uh, COVID has caused people to be very afraid. And what you're seeing, for instance, when it comes to masking or not to mask or or demanding you know mandating that everybody gets vaccinated or and i am by the way fully vaccinated i've been for months but mandating this uh and stuff is because people are so afraid of death and they think that mm -hmm. and, and it's not uh, frankly by the way this follow the science is one of the biggest falsehoods that there is because science doesn't tell us anything about how we should act it only tells us what exists what actually is occurring in the universe uh, but one quick thing, if we, for instance, the World Health Organization says that a million and a half people are killed every year by automobile accidents. If we reduced the speed limit worldwide to 30 miles an hour, we would save hundreds of thousands of lives every year. And not only that, how many hundreds of thousands of severe injuries would be stopped if we lowered the speed limit worldwide uh, to 30 miles an hour? But nobody wants to do that. Especially my wife with how she drives. Well, the... right. And me too, frankly. <laughs> but we want to get places faster. But notice what I'm saying is saving lives in that case is not a scientific decision because the science is, low. well, let's drive 30. So yeah, people are desperately afraid of death and COVID has heightened their death fears. And, and as a result, they're panicking. And no. it, it, you're hearing all kinds of contradictory information over what you should do or what you shouldn't do and because people are desperately afraid of dying. Yeah. And that was the thing that really stuck out at me when I read your book. It's just how prevalent it is. It, it's in everything that we do. In one way or another, it is the fear of death. Like, so for example, I'm, I'm just going to use my own example here. Like, why do I work? Why am I so afraid of losing my job? Right. Let's say economy in the province of Alberta hasn't has been that great over the last little while. And a lot of people around me are losing their jobs. And thankfully, I have my job. I'm working with Andy and the organization is strong. But the thought occurs to me, right? What if I lose my job, right? And my fear at some point is connected to death, I find. And and so the as I was reading your book, it really kind of it hit me and just how much people, how far people are willing to go to achieve some kind of an immortality. So you talk about literal immortality projects, symbolic immortality projects, and then there's mitigated 
immortality prizes and those kinds of things, these sort of secular attempts at achieving immortality. Could you give our listeners sort of a flavor of what these are like? Well, for literal, that's the first thing, is people are literally trying to live forever. And the hope, of course, if you ask people, are you are you trying to live forever? They go, oh, no, no, I know that's not possible. But they they are, and they're hoping that science is going to come through one day and it's going to fix everything that might kill us. One day science is going to finally do what it's supposed to do, and we're going to be able to live forever. Uh, first Facebook president, Sean Parker, says, because I have, I'm a billionaire, I have better access to healthcare, and I'm probably going to live to 160 and then join this class of immortal overlords. And what he means is, is that by the time I'm, you know, if I live to a certain point, uh, science will then have fixed it all, and I'm just going to go on uh, living forever. Uh, David Asprey, the founder of Bulletproof Coffee, says exactly. He says he's going to live to 180, and uh, he's you know spent a million dollars on supplements and other things and the kinds of foods he eats, and he has a cryotherapy chamber, and he has a infrared. Anyway, he, he bathes in infrared light, and on and on and on. And and Whole Foods markets uh, are full of people that are hoping, you know, if I, and because what's happened though, we've distracted ourselves from death, and the way we do it is we no longer think about not dying. We try to avoid all the things that might kill us. And but see, then that's distracting us because we're like, oh, I can't eat this. I need to be sure it's non-GMO. Yeah. Uh, I got to and on and on and on. I've got to exercise just right. I got to do this and that. I got to make sure I see the doctor just the right amount. And, and anyway, you get the point. It's become an interesting religion of technology where people have put their hope in businesses like Google or others that can offer them this virtual eternity where you'll upload your minds to the clouds and and technology will solve all of, you know, the blind will receive sight and the lame will walk, right? And, and you'll have this virtual eternity. Yeah, and that's never going to happen. As David Chalmers, who is a neuroscientist at New York University, says, he says, we don't even know what consciousness is. Uh, he says, so the idea of putting consciousness in a computer, he says, we have no idea what it even is. And he's a non-Christian neuroscience. It's not even going to uh, happen. Uh, and I, I think people are putting their hope in that, right, that this is all going to happen. It's not going to happen because we have souls. We're not just purely material stuff. And, and, and the idea that so circuitry is going to become conscious is basically, then they call it the singularity where, where circuitry becomes conscious and then it starts improving itself. And that's going to save us as the singularity is going to save us. A lot of people are putting their hope in that. Uh, cue the theme to 2001, a space odyssey. Uh, we're we're going we're gonna to be saved by science. That's never, ever going to happen. Computers cannot become conscious. Uh, it's just, anyway, it's, but, but people are put, but you've got to have, see, if you're an atheist, what do you got? Computers. Or, as I mentioned in the book, people like Simon Cowell and Larry King and Seth MacFarlane have said, I want to be cryogenically frozen uh, so that, you know, one day when the technology catches up, they can bring me back to life. But somehow uh, I'm going to, you know, transcend my death, literally. That's the crazy town of this whole thing. And, and a lot of people are really hoping for that. And, and one of the things that really stood out to me as I was reading that part about literal immortality projects is just the continued failure of it all, right? So you you list one person after another of who oh, yeah. you know, started this health program who just ironically died at a much younger age than we'd expected. Or, you know, if you don't die of 
this one thing, you get killed by this other thing. And it's just it's just the fragility of humanity just really stood out at me. And just kind of our futile attempt at trying to get around it and the fear that is behind it all, it's just, it was really striking to me. That was that whole section where I go through one health, the, the demise of one health food expert after another. And I go through, as you said, Stephen, a couple of pages, all of the people, the health food promoters and exercise promoters running advocate Jim Fix died of a coronary embolism when he was 52. A pritikin of the pritikin diet slashed his wrists while he was in a hospital bed, uh, dying of leukemia at 70 years old. My mother loved Adele Davis, who wrote the book, Let's Eat Right to Keep Fit. And she died at 70 of blood cancer. Uh, the guy that invented the, the basis of the South Beach diet died very young. These, and I, I think a little bit what's going on, the Lord's saying, so you think you're going to live a long time and put your trust in medical science. I'm going to show you differently. And if anybody has any doubts about that, check out those two or three pages in my book, because it's one after another of these people died actually very young of health related problems. It didn't work for them. And it's not going to work for anybody else either. And on top of that, Clay, is if you think about it, do you really want that project to work? I mean, I could imagine some great movies of people that get cryogenically frozen only to be brought back into hell on earth, just some sort of shambled, apocalyptic, you know, scene going, put just refreeze me and bring bring me back at another time. Or I think about somebody whose mind's been uploaded to the cloud. I mean, just imagining if this could even be possible. You know, A, you could have this idea of living forever by yourself, but then also you could imagine living forever in a broken world. It, oh, yeah. It, it's like people haven't really thought through this. Mm -hmm. You know, you haven't dealt with the, the problem uh, that's going on. You're still in a broken world. Mm -hmm. Now you have to endure it forever. Yeah, I agree. It's like we're watching a slow motion train wreck with the world. You know, I mean, we're spending money we don't have. Sooner or later, I mean, you're really a dumb person if you don't think sooner or later somebody's going to have to pay for that, or we're going to print our way out of it, and inflation's going to go through the roof or something. Uh, I mean, this is just this is just crazy town, and so yeah, I uh, this isn't going to happen. Yeah, on a lighter note, I just have to say, you know, me coming from Korea, you know, raised in Asia, I'm I beat around the bush a lot because that's part of being courteous in that culture. And I think I kind of live a little bit vicariously through Clay because he's just very direct. He has no problem shattering people's <laughs> false hopes. Yeah, that health regime, that's not going to work. <laughs> so, well, that's yeah, great. We, well, if you want, we can go on to symbolic immortality and then I'll really shatter. Oh, by the way, if they cured every form of cancer, people think we're living a lot longer. Well, people are not living a lot longer. And they go, well, yeah, but the mm -hmm. life expectancy at the turn of the 20th century was about 45 years old. True. Now it's about 78 and a half. That's true. But that's because of a decrease in infant mortality. Once you got out of infanthood, you live, we're not living a lot longer than we did 100 years mm -hmm. ago. I think in the book you said it, you only live a little over two years. Was it 2.6 or something like that years longer if you were to cure cancer? If they cured every form of cancer, every form of mm -hmm. cancer, there's no cancer left in the world. The average American or average person would live 2.265 years longer. That's it, folks. Uh, you're not going to live forever. But uh, so people put their hopes. Most people, almost everybody does. In fact, I'm going to change that. Outs unless you're a Christian who has a robust view of eternal life in Jesus, you're trying to symbolically live on past your death. 
And here's where I really crush everybody's hope, Stephen. Uh, most people are trying to live on symbolically by having children. Hmm. And uh, I, uh, but, you know, your children are half you, their children are a quarter you, their children are point, well, 12.5%. <laughs> After 20 generations, it's 0. 0.00004 for you. But it may be worse than that because dominant and regressive genes and they transfer over in blocks in just a few generations there might not be any of you left in your children but here's the thing and you guys since you both took classes from me you might uh, you might have heard me say this to class because i've enjoyed asking classes this question how many of you know the first names of your great great grandparents yeah i think in total in every class that i've asked i think three or four students uh have raised their hands the first names of all your great-great-grandparents, right? Well, I think three or four students have got, I know the first names of my great-great-grandparents out of all the classes I've asked. But then here's the, here's the key. I love to ask this. It shows you who I am. Uh, I say, do you care? No one cares. <laughs> I have never had one student go, hey, no, it's really important to me. Uh, it's just, it's not. Mm -hmm. Now, maybe, you know, in, later in life, they'll get into genealogy research, which is an immortality project. But mm -hmm. nobody cares. You're not going to live on through your children. And I've had people get very upset with me when I brought this up. But do the math. Think about it. Most of the people in 90 9% of the people, unless you're really into genealogy research, do not care who you're, what the first names of your great-great-grandparents are. If that's the case, you're not going to live on through your kids because they don't care. One 20-something woman uh, said, why, raised her hand in one class, and she says, well, I'm glad they got together. <laughs> and i thought well i get that part you bet baby but anyway so that's but this is the kind of thing that people are trying to live on symbolically and i think they know down deep in their hearts this isn't yeah. this isn't going to make the difference yeah and, and what about legacies because that's something that we often hear about so Andy and me, when we run something like the thinking series, for example, and we talk about the meaning of life, that's the very first question that we tackle. Often people will say, well, I, I know I'm, I'm not going to live forever, but what if I left a legacy that's going to live on after me? I mean, right. And, and you address this in your book uh, right away. My first thought is, yeah, but you're not going to be there to enjoy it. So what what's the use? But and and what are the chances of you leaving a legacy that's going to last that long? But uh, what would be your response to that symbolic immortality? Well, project? that's a huge one, right? I'm going to do something that's going to live on past me. Uh, and it, maybe it's, it's uh, you know, becoming a celebrity, you know, but somehow I'm going to do something. I'll write a book and it's not, it has, isn't lost on me that I've written books, but I try to live, by the way, for the audience of one. But think about it. If there is no God, if there is no God, this is all going to burn up, and then it's going to it's going to go to absolute zero. If there is a God, His is the only opinion that matters. And by the way, if you're doing stuff so that your name will live on, if that's why you're doing it, then you're not doing it out of love. And read the first opening verses of First uh, Corinthians 13, where Paul says, "If I speak with the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I'm just a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I give up my body to be burned, see these are immortality. I'm going to live on. I'm going to do something famous." He says, "I profit nothing, uh, and because we're going to stand before the Creator of the universe, and we're going to have to give an account of ourselves." And the only opinion that's going to matter is, is going to be his. And if we're doing things here 
to make a name for ourselves. That's not doing it for Jesus. That, and that's not doing it for our neighbor either. That's doing it for us. And that's what the rest of the world is doing. And that's why the, the non-Christians do so many good acts uh, like Zuckerberg's name is on San Francisco General Hospital. It's Zuckerberg uh, is there. Uh, uh, these guys are putting their names on all these things. And they go, oh, and non-Christians go, oh, wow, that's so good that he gave that. He put his name on the building. It was an immortality project. Your, your legacy, the only one that matters, I can't emphasize this enough. The only one that matters is that you're going to live on in Jesus, and then you're going to be judged. And if you did it for the wrong reasons, your works are all going to be burned up. Work for the audience of one. That's there's my point. And I love it too. As you can tell, Clay preaches, and I love I love it, Clay. Uh, I want to get into a deep subject that you I, I've noticed immediately when I started writing reading your book that you made a careful caveat. You say people are afraid to die, save those with a robust and not that wasn't lost on me that you did that, Clay. Yeah. A robust view of the glorious eternal life in Jesus. Now, you you share a scripture verse that I think is important for us to read. It's found in Hebrews chapter 2. I'll read verses 14 and 15. You can see that what Clay's getting after in this book is profoundly biblical of an issue. And it says, since the children have flesh and blood, he, too, Jesus, shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Clay, one of the things that just breaks my heart as as a pastor and in the ministry of apologetics, as I get it when people who don't know Jesus fear death, but man, does it pain me when those who profess to know Jesus fear death. Yes, uh, I it pains me too, and it's one of the things that I find most, well, I'm going to just use the word upsetting. I, it's upsetting to me that so few Christians have a robust view of eternal life in Jesus. For most Christians, uh, heaven is the PS to the Christian life. It's like, I'm going to live my life here. I'm going to have kids. I'm going to live, well, maybe you don't say this in Canada, the American dream. Uh, we're going we're gonna to get a lot of money, accumulate a big 401k. Uh, we're going to have this big retirement and a nice house and kids, and the kids are going to be successful. And we're going to be able to travel the world and just come back and enjoy the kids on holidays. Uh, that's that's what we're going to be doing. That's uh, that's the that's not what Jesus promises you, and it's not what he died for. And then they say, and then I get to go to heaven, whatever that's about. That's not going to work, folks. That, listen to me, bro, my brothers and sisters in Christ, that's not going to work for you. That's a failure. Uh, you won't be able to escape uh, the fear of death, and it will drive your life. And then, of course, your family becomes your God. Uh, but, but most Christians don't have a robust view of eternal life in heaven. And that's because, frankly, uh, partially because Satan has done his best to make heaven look like a place mm -hmm. you wouldn't want to go. And it's, it's ironic that, you know, not only do many professing Christians fear death, but they actually fear heaven. Yeah. Wow. Well, I'm glad you brought that up. Uh, as I said, the devil has made, I think some of his best work, uh, and by that I mean worst work, but and some of it, from his point of view, his best work is to make heaven look like a place you won't want to go, where you're going to be sitting on clouds, strumming harps, 
sporting flightless wings and singing nonstop. <laughs> the Bible doesn't teach any of those things. Uh, I'm not going to get flightless wings, Clay. Come on. No, you're not. Uh, and and th- those things are not true. Your occupation, by the way, as I talk about in my book, Beyond Evil, is you're going to reign with Christ. And, you know, heaven is most compared to a most often compared in the Old and New Testaments to a banquet. You know, it says in Isaiah that we're going to be eating fatted meat, in other words, well-marbled meat. And it says when we'll be drinking aged wine. And I think it means what it says. Uh, I'm not trying to encourage anybody to drink, but this is what the Bible says. Talk about this at length in both of my books, because I think it's so important for people to have the right view of heaven. God is pro-pleasure. And I just want to remind everybody, if there is a God and he created humankind, then he was the one that made orgasms possible just saying. Uh, And so he's pro-pleasure. He's pro-sex. He's pro-food. He's pro-drink. He's against the misuse of those things. I think if people started wrapping their minds around this, they go, well, maybe heaven's not going to be a bummer after all, because they see heaven as a bummer. Like I say, this is Satan's doing. And we've got to, you know, we've got to set the record straight here. And I try to do that, by the way, in both of my books. The last chapters of both of my books are about heaven and about eternity and, and how we need to make that the focus of our lives. It's one of the reasons why, with uh, Apologize Canada, Steve and I talk so much about Jesus's prayer in John chapter 17, where he talks about, the, where he says, this is eternal life, that they may know you. And he gets at this aspect of relationship, you know, like like you're saying, it's not, you know, floating around on clouds playing harps. You know, you were created for relationship with God. Now, I don't know if you've seen the TV show, The Good Place. I haven't watched an entire episode, but I'm familiar with I'm familiar with what it does. Okay, well, spoiler alert for anyone who hasn't seen it, that the end of The Good Place, where it starts out that these people have died and actually have gone to the bad place, but then the, the whole series is about them trying to get to the good place. But the problem is, is in the end, they really didn't get to the good place because all they got to was it living forever. And eventually, they got bored of living forever, and the show ends with each one of them coming to their own place of boredom and eternal life till they just, they annihilate themselves. That's how the, the, the series ends. Sorry, and it wasn't just, um, it wasn't just that they had immortality, they even had immortality plus pleasure, and that wasn't good enough for them. And so they actually eventually say, okay, like we need to be able to basically off ourselves in, in, in a way. And that mortality gives things more color and meaning. Now everybody's able to kind of in, actually enjoy themselves, you know, and those kinds of things. And I, and I look at that and I go, the philosopher in me, right? It goes, no, that's, that's not going to work. If everything is going to end in death, like what's the point of it all? You know, what you're bringing up, I talk about literal, as you guys know, I talk about literal immortality projects. Then I talk about symbolic immortality projects, writing a book, having children, doing some saving the planet is a symbolic immortality project. And so if you thwart somebody's efforts that you're killing them a second time, see, because no, no, you can't thwart my project. Of, but then there's mortality mitigation projects. So that's the next thing that I talk about. And that's what atheists engage in. The number one mortality mitigation project is you wouldn't want to live forever anyway. I think that's 
probably the worst case of sour grapes in the history of created beings. Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah, I wouldn't want to live forever anyway. You can take your eternal life and shove it. I think that's crazy town. But now, but back to your point, Andy, on this earth, with it heading towards ultimate death and destruction, no, maybe not. But but we're talking about being transferred this, where he's going to make a new heavens and a new earth where there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, where David says in Psalm 16, in your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Like I said, the most often thing that scripture compare, uh, compares heaven to is a banquet, that this is the future. And so, but but atheists, their first argument out of the gate is you wouldn't want to live forever anyway. Uh, and, and I call that a mortality mitigation project. At this juncture, I think it's good just to pause for a moment, and and I want to take a look at your story, because I think some people could hear what we're talking about and be like, oh, it's just one thing to talk about death, but it's something different when you have to stare death in the face. Now, a book recently came out by Lee Strobel called The Case for Heaven. And he interviews you in chapter one uh, of that book, and, and it begins with you sharing your your story. And I think it'd be important for people to know, you know, you're coming at this with some skin in the game. I'm coming at this with some skin in the game. I yeah, I was surprised because I opened up Lee Strobel's book and I thought, wow, my, my name's in the, the first sentence of the first chapter. But anyway, uh, I've faced death. Uh, more than once. I grew up with them thinking there was something wrong with my heart. And I have a pronounced case of mitral valve prolapse. When I was a kid, they didn't know what that was. They thought it's a heart murmur, but they thought my parents always thought I was going to die. I remember as a little kid, them taking me to a doctor to do a physical so that they could take out a life insurance policy on me. I think it was like eight when I was eight years old. And I remember they're taking out a life insurance wow. policy on me. Uh, and, and they always were looked concerned and they'd be put their hands on my chest to see how my heart was doing. And I do have a very pronounced case of it. And one day it could end up in some serious trouble, but I wasn't that concerned about death at eight, nine, 10, simply because, you know, at eight, nine, 10, you don't have that much of a comprehension of what death is. When, when I was 15 though, a friend of mine that was 16 or 17 died of cancer that really hit me. And then from then on, I'd find a lump in <laughs> I'm going to die. And I had to deal with that. And I had to deal with that as a Christian because I became a Christian at almost 13. And I thought I've got to, you know, I've just got to trust the Lord. But then what really the thing was, is I began to get to the point where I thought I've got to have a robust view of eternal life in Jesus. And I, and I, and I focused on heaven and I began to focus my life on heaven. And, I, and about 18, 19 years ago, I started having lower back pain and it was you know, first it just starts off. It's just not that bad. It, kept, it started getting worse and worse and worse. I always want to tell audiences, you don't have this. It's very rare. Uh, you, oh, you might have lower back pain, but you don't have a, what I'm about to describe, but it got worse and worse. And I'd go to doctors and one, one doctor after another, take x-rays and say, you need to do stretching exercises. And it would get worse, got worse and worse and worse. Finally, I saw, I got to the point where I couldn't sleep anymore. Uh, I, I hardly at all. I, so I, I, I stopped sleeping upstairs with my wife, which made me very sad because I was in so much pain. I'd have to get up every hour, just about every hour and walk, kind of walk it off. And finally, my next door neighbor is a retired professor of surgery says, you should get a CT. I get a CT on a Friday, on a Monday morning, I get a phone call from my orthopedic surgeon. And he says, you have a mass on your spine. Uh, you have a tumor on your spine. And uh, Jean, I went into Jeannie's office after we, she, she heard it on the other line. Uh, we hung up and I went into Jeannie's office and with tears streaming down our faces, 
I held hands with her and I prayed and said, and led us in a prayer of thanksgiving to God. And I also prayed for my healing, but I, with tears streaming down our faces, led us in a prayer of thanksgiving to God. And I knew at that moment that I defeated Satan in the heavenly realms. Uh, then they, things start moving fast. I see this orthopedic, the director of the orthopedic oncology program at uh, Cedar sinai and uh, he, they schedule a biopsy. The biopsy comes back and says, I have a very severe form of cancer. The, the doctor says to me, uh, if that's what you have, he's the director of the musculoskeletal tumor program. I mean, this guy is, knows his stuff. He says, if that's what you have, we're not going to operate. We're going to start you on chemo. And if the chemo shrinks the tumor, then we might operate. And by the way, that's the same cancer that killed Robbie Zacharias that the biopsy diagnosed. Well, we knew that was bad news, but we get off the phone and we met in the hallway and with tears streaming down our faces, I led us in a prayer of thanksgiving to God. And at that moment, I knew that I defeated Satan in the heavenly realms. It turned out the biopsy was mistaken. Thankfully, the oncologist I was seeing thought, you know, I don't think they see enough of these tumors, or this kind of cancer. I see a lot of them because of what I do. And he looked at the slides himself and says, we're going to operate anyway. It turned out they were wrong. It was comparatively mild form of cancer, still serious cancer. But, uh, you know, I lost my tailbone and the bone above that and half the bone above that. Inquiring minds want to know, but I'm fine. Uh, <laughs> thankfully, you don't, you don't need those bones very much. I'm thankful to say. But as I was writing this book, I was lying there in bed and staring at the ceiling, woke up about three o'clock. I'm not a morning person. I can't, ugh. and it was hard to get on this early in the morning, uh, but I'm lying there in bed and I'm staring at the ceiling and it's dark. And I'm thinking about my book on death. And I started thinking, you know, I started thinking about my own death and I realized it, it didn't trouble me. In fact, it didn't bother me. In fact, it didn't bother me at all. Not at all. It didn't bother me any more than thinking I need to turn on the sprinklers when I get up. Uh, it was like, it's just a fact because I've now have, I have a robust view of eternal life in Jesus. And I trust him that I'm not going to taste death. The, the three of us are not going to taste death. And what he means by that isn't that our bodies won't die. But it's when you die, it's not going to be like the computer reboots where you have to turn it off and turn it back on. Our consciousness will never cease. And we're going to be, this is stage one of eternal life. Stage two is we're going to be disembodied until the Lord returns. And then we're going, that's stage two. Then stage three, we're going to get glorified bodies like Jesus had. And we're going to live forever and ever and ever. So... All I can say is, and I think people look at me sometimes and go, yeah, sure, you're not afraid of death. I don't know what to tell you. I'm not afraid of the state of being dead. I might be a little afraid of the way I might die. That's different. I don't want to die of Alzheimer's. If that's what the Lord has for me, then I will honor him to the end. But I don't want to do that. I don't want to die of cancer. I've already done cancer. I know how painful that can be. But uh, I'm not afraid of the state of being dead. And, and everybody that's listening to this or watching this, you don't have to be afraid of this of being dead because you're not going to taste death. You're going to live on forever if you have a robust view of eternal life in Jesus. Now, Clay, let me ask you this question. I'm curious your response to this, because one of the things that I found in my life is when I was younger, before I had a robust relationship with Jesus, I did fear death. In fact, the fear of not just death, but the fear of meaninglessness and death combined is what really brought me to Christ. But it's interesting, though, when you have a relationship with the Lord, and maybe you've worked past that fear of death, it's interesting to me how the fear of life can start to creep in. You know, willing to, to take risks and to live for the kingdom— uh, and maybe another way people could just say this is by walking by faith, you know, because I I think it's interesting that just because you don't have a fear of death doesn't necessarily mean 
that it's all rainbows and sunshine. No, no, by no means. I'm glad you brought that up. I think that's the first time anybody in, when I've been asked about this has ever brought that up. But our lives aren't going to get better. Uh, I mean, they're just not. Uh, as, as you guys know, I like to say, you know, the only one thing is going to prevent you from watching everyone you know die from murder, accident, or disease, and that will be your own death from murder, accident, or disease. So have a nice day with that. Uh, uh, you know, I mean, something sooner or later is going to kill all of us. Uh, and, you know, old age, uh, I'm getting older. In fact, it's weird. I'm, I turned 65 today. Uh, this is oh, my birthday. Happy of all birthday. things, strange. I thought, well, you know, I, I'm not going to do anything better than this on my birthday. So let's do it. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I could be eating cake. Uh, <laughs> this is better than eating cake because that's meaningless. Uh, anyway, but but you're right. But you know, I talk in my book, the last chapter of the book. Well, the second to the last chapter is how to focus on heaven. Uh, we need to realize that, put everything in the context is, I'm coming to you, Jesus. Uh, it says in Hebrews chapter 10, I think, uh, looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who, who for the joy that was set for, before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of God. See, I need to see this life as boot camp for eternity. And, uh, uh, you know, a, a Somebody, I was doing an interview and this guy had me on the radio and he said, uh, what do you do? I said, well, I write on evil, death and, death and suffering. He says, that must be a bummer. I said, no, it's exhilarating. Uh, and, and But I knew why he said that. So I started interviewing Navy SEALs. Uh, and I've read, uh, I've interviewed three Navy SEALs now. Uh, and uh, one of them still in active duty and two of them, you know, two of them re retired from being SEALs. Uh, two of them Christians, one of them not. And uh, what, you know, SEAL training is the most brutal thing that you can do. I mean, they, they actually, they call it surf tortures where they have them lie on the sand in the surf and they lock arms with each other and they lie there until the, the like the, the uh, commanding officer will say, uh, you're going to, you're going to lie there until three of you drop. And I mean, they get to the point where they're jackhammer cold. They're actually torturing them. And I say, well, what, how, how was your attitude towards this? Why did you become a seal? If you knew they were going to put you through one, devastating test physical endurance test after another after another after another why because they saw the goal uh they wanted to become a navy seal they wanted the trident and and so the the key for us as we face suffering is we have to understand what it's doing and, and Jeannie and i quote this verse to each other before we go to sleep a lot it's in uh second corinthians chapter four it says this slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, that the sufferings that I endure here are actually part of God's process of preparing me for eternal glory, that he's going to glorify me. And as you and I, and, and those of you that are listening, is if you honor God through suffering, the scripture says in, in Revelation chapter two, that if we overcome, we will be seated with him. He says, I will have you sit with me on my throne, just as I sat with my father on his throne. And he says, he was an ear to hear, let him hear. That we need to go when is to not focus on how oh, I might get Alzheimer's or, you know, my kids may turn out to be rebellious little punks that mean they do nothing <laughs> with their lives or whatever. <laughs> we need to realize that, you know, I'm going to live forever and every hardship I face is preparing me for eternal glory. And this is boot camp. 
for eternity. And as you do that, then you don't fear life like, you know, I mean, still cancer, still cancer. I mean, it's hard, but you won't fear it in the same way because you're going to see it like the Navy SEALs saw surf tortures. This is horrible, but I do, but I'm going to get that trident. What? And by the way, one of them, uh, Chad Williams, uh, he's a Christian and goes around and speaks a lot, wrote a book on former Navy SEAL. He said the happiest day, moment of his life is when he received his trident. He, he became a SEAL. He says 20 minutes later, it was the most depressed he'd ever been because he realized that it wasn't it wasn't innately meaningful. It wasn't inherently meaningful. He was done. There's nothing left to do. I'm now a SEAL. Big deal. Uh, and uh, so, but but we're going to live forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. If that's not true, Christianity is a false religion, and we ought to do what the world does and drink, get the biggest big screen TV we can and drink our brains out. But if Christianity is true, we're going to live forever and ever, and all the hardships and all the sufferings that we're enduring are preparing us to inherit eternal life. Mm-hmm. I realize that was a, almost a sermon. I love it because now it's really put together your journey in these books that you can see this progression from talking about why God allows evil to a look at eternity and being immortal to now with you focusing on the subject of suffering. You really see how these three are very intertwined. As, as, as you may have heard me say, God's plan A for your life is to take you through r- regular periods of suffering and there is no plan B. <laughs> this is the plan folks i've got news for you and you go oh well i didn't sign up for this well you know what i got news for you this is this is the plan he's going to make you like him and jesus said he who endures to the end will be saved and you need to endure to the end but if you do you're going to get a crown the crown of life and you're going to reign with jesus forever and you need to have this focus as you hit face suffering mm-hmm. because we're all going to face suffering and uh and also by the way uh, the scripture, of course, as you know, says, do not be anxious about tomorrow, is I need to discipline my mind so that I'm not thinking about this. What What if tomorrow something bad happens? You know, because you can lose all your joy and all your peace in just a moment by thinking about something that might happen tomorrow, or the next day or the next month. It robs you of your joy and your peace. And you, not, you need to stop those thoughts. And here's the thing. Watch this. We have to learn to reign in your brain because that's the thing you need to reign over. Is your own brain. Because if you can reign over your brain, you can do, <laughs> you know, it's like it's better than being able to catch a fly with chopsticks. Uh, a lot of you are too young to, rem- you probably didn't see that movie. But Karate Kid, man, it's a le- legendary. <laughs> but uh, anyway, I, I kind of wish that I hadn't said that. But anyway, uh, you know, <laughs> a little bit of a distraction. Fun movie, though. Uh, but anyway, uh, I just, um, we've got to learn to reign in our brain. And as you do that, You're showing yourself worthy to men and to angels who are watching us because angels are watching us. They're looking at us. Other humans are looking at us. At the judgment, it's going to be revealed what we endured for the cause of Christ. And we're going to be judged worthy if we are worthy. If we continue to honor God through suffering and persecution, if we continue to do that, we're going to be judged worthy to inherit the kingdom. And then it's all worth it. You know, as we as we come to a close here, one of the things that I can't help but think of as you're talking there, Clay, is this is what I love about Jesus. Yeah. I love that in Jesus you see him not just talking about this or giving us some, you know, sage words and 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 leaving us to 
to fend for ourselves, but, but one who came and endured, like us, like was read in Hebrews. Right. He came in flesh. He's experienced and he's overcome. And I, and I look to Jesus saying, listen, man, I love, I love Jesus, and I've, and I've realized as a Christian I'm not Jesus, but I want to be like Jesus. And then this discipleship process of coming to him saying, Jesus, teach me. Teach me to not be afraid of death. Teach me to not be afraid of life. Teach me how to handle evil. Teach me how to deal with suffering. That's the project of being a Christian. Yes. In fact, uh, my first life prayer, I should say, is to love the Lord with all my heart and with all my soul and with all my mind and with all my strength and to love my neighbors myself. My second is from Ephesians 1, 17 to 19, and I encourage everyone that's watching this, hearing this, to not only memorize these verses, but to pray them. Paul prays, and he says he prays this all the time, that we would know the hope that we've been called to. I find seven hopes in scriptures, the hope of redemption, the hope of resurrection, uh, the hope of eternal life, the hope of glory, and so on. I find seven hopes in scriptures that we would know the hope that we've been called to, the riches of his glorious inheritance. We're getting it all. He's giving us the kingdom. He's not letting us visit it. We're going to get it. We're receiving it. We're inheriting the kingdom and this surpassingly great power that's a work for us who believe that if you're really a Christian, God is working mightily in your life to, to make you more like him. And if you understand that the biggest thing and the most important thing in the world for you is that you become more like Jesus. And once you understand Amen. that, and then that puts the suffering in context. But I encourage all, all of you who are watching this to pray those verses because we need a revelation of the glory that awaits us in heaven. Because unfortunately, we're in a stupor regarding heaven. Like I say, where heaven is going to be a bummer and we're going to just sing and, you know, strum harps. Um, God created all the pleasures, including sex and drink. And, and we should expect in heaven it to be an incredibly pleasurable place where we're going to enjoy each other and the creator of the universe forever. Wow. We could talk with you for a long, long time. Andy and I always enjoy our conversation with you, what few chances we get. Now, as we wrap up, if you want our listeners to learn more about you and your work, where would you send them? Playjones.net. What could be simpler? <laughs> and i really do just want to encourage listeners uh clay's books are wonderful he has an incredible way to engage and and so does his website he's got lots of resources there i have thoroughly appreciated your blogs and, and journals over the year i know you've written for ratio christie uh philosophia christie oh philosophia christie I've got some, by the way, some articles coming out in the Worldview Bulletin, which is a pretty new thing. It's in Substack on, on the trouble with annihilationism, that it's not going to accomplish God's purposes. But anyway, uh, that's uh, that's neither here nor there right now. But uh, yeah, thank you. I, I uh, uh, My books, of course, and uh, because my books, by the way, both of them end with talking about heaven. And that's Christians need more of that. But, but anyway, yeah. thank you. Absolutely. Yeah. So listeners, I hope that this interview with Dr. Jones has really whetted your appetite. I really highly encourage you to go and get a copy of Immortal, How the Fear of Death Drives Us and What We Can Do About It. Like I said, I think Clay has really put his finger on a cultural pulse there, and you're going to thoroughly enjoy this very accessible book, and you can get it at all major book retailers, whatever, whatever you go for. Go get a copy. Clay, again, it's been such a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us and sharing your insights with our listeners. 
Well, thank you, Stephen. Thank you, Andy. It's been a pleasure to be with you. I always like seeing you guys. And and uh, if you're ever down in my neck of the woods again, let me know. We'll at least have lunch. If if, if you bring your spouses, we can do better than that. Uh, and, uh, we'll, you know, get together and have dinner. Anyways, pleasure to be with you. Well, listeners, thank you for joining us on this week's edition of AC Podcast. We'll come back next week with more stuff to think about.